Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to Matthew. We are in chapter 21 this morning and reading verses 1 through 11. And so I invite you once again to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. If you have been a regular attender in worship over the years, there is little doubt that you are familiar with these words taken from the prophecy of Isaiah. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When Isaiah first uttered those words, they were a proclamation declaring that the exile of the people of Israel was drawing to a close after 70 years, and that their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and of David, would himself come to them and lead them home. Several centuries later, Each of the gospel writers reported on the ministry of John the Baptist who self-identified as that Old Testament voice that was crying out in the wilderness that message to prepare the way of the Lord. And the means by which John said people were to do that was by repenting of their sin, demonstrating their change of disposition through the sign of baptism. What is interesting about the Hebrew language when Isaiah 40 begins is that the first two words of that chapter are translated as comfort. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Hebrew word for comfort there is nihom. It is a verb that conveys a kind of deep sigh of relief. But this is not some meditative exercise that the prophet is commanding the people to do because the verb is plural here. There, there are those, perhaps the priests, perhaps the disciples of the prophet, who are being instructed to comfort the people. They are being commanded to comfort the people of God in a way that brings them a sense of this deep relief. But this word is not about breathing exercises. What is more plausible is that what is being communicated here is the comfort that results from a change in attitude. This verb, nihom, in another form means repent. In other words, the comfort that the Lord is advocating for His people, the sense of relief, will arise from heading in a new direction. Now, you may be well aware that Matthew, our gospel writer for today, like Isaiah, was a Hebrew. But unlike Isaiah, Matthew was a Jew who betrayed his people by going to work for the enemy, the Romans, as a tax collector. This is Levi, whom Jesus calls to follow him one day, and he immediately leaves his tax-collecting booth in order to become one of Jesus' twelve disciples. And as a Jew, Matthew's gospel account has the children of Abraham as his primary audience. His chief desire in this gospel is to communicate to them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah for whom they have all prayed for and longed to see. Matthew is well aware of what is important to these people. He's well aware that as a people, they all had a little bit of Missouri attitude in them. They were the original show-me state. As Paul indicates, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And so after opening his gospel with Jesus' ancestral bona fides, Matthew peppers this gospel with messianic scriptural references, and then he points to how these prophetic utterances found their fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And it is in this way that he seeks to show his audience that this Jesus, he's the Christ. Now what is somewhat interesting is that Matthew does not focus on Jesus ever being in Jerusalem until we come to the end of his story. That is, throughout the ministry that Matthew relates, all the action takes place in Galilee or the surrounding regions. There are frequently interactions between Jesus and Pharisees or others who have come to Jesus from Jerusalem But Matthew does not relate any visits that Jesus makes to Jerusalem. Now, does that mean that Jesus never visited Jerusalem throughout his ministry? No, it doesn't mean that. The Apostle John relates some of those visits and the interactions that Jesus had there. But Mark and Matthew and Luke 
the synoptists heighten the tension that existed between Jesus and the religious elite by showing that the bulk of Jesus' ministry occurred in Galilee and other places outside of Jerusalem. The only time that Matthew talks about Jesus being in Jerusalem prior to chapter 21 is when the devil transports Jesus to the tippy top of the temple and tempts him to throw himself off in order to confirm that the word of God can be fully trusted according to Psalm 91 that speaks of the spiritual protection that God the Father provides to the Son through his angels. And of course Jesus rejects that temptation with a different scripture taken from Deuteronomy 6. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Other than that, Matthew does not speak of any episodes of Jesus being in Jerusalem. Now, what, if anything, does that mean? In each of the synoptic Gospels, there comes a moment when a shift occurs in Jesus' ministry. And in each of them, it occurs after the moment when Jesus asks the twelve about their understanding of his identity. You remember that story. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter affirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is at that point that Jesus begins to talk to them about his impending death. And in each of the synoptic Gospels, we are given hints that they have left then the ministry in Galilee and they are methodically heading towards Jerusalem. Now for Matthew, this moment in chapter 21 that we've come to today is quite monumental. As a son of Abraham, he has spent the past three years walking with Jesus, becoming thoroughly convinced that he is the Messiah. But in his mind, as well as in the mind of his compatriots, This translates into Jesus being the king. Even though on three separate occasions Jesus has spoken to them alone about his death at the hands of the religious authorities. But that outcome was impossible for them to understand, to comprehend. Matthew indicates that when Jesus told them this, they were distressed. Mark indicates that they did not understand and they were afraid to ask. Luke goes so far as to state that they understood none of what Jesus said, that it was hidden from them and they had no grasp of it. And given the fact that an enormous crowd has been growing as Jesus has been slowly making his way to Jerusalem, it is hard for the twelve to believe that tragedy awaits when they get there. The people to whom Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing along the way to Jerusalem are beginning to sense that something extraordinary is about to unfold. And so they are following him to the city of God in hopes of telling their grandchildren one day that they were there the day that God's Messiah took the throne. So convinced is She, that this is going to happen, that the mother of James and John has just approached Jesus with a private request. That Jesus name her two sons 
as those privileged to sit on his left and on his right when he grabs hold of the reins of power. And turning to these two men, Jesus asks them if they are able to drink the cup that he is about to drink, and they say, we are. There is no clue among the twelve about what is soon to take place. For when the other ten hear what this little cabal attempted to do to ace them out of such privileged positions, they were indignant to the point that Jesus intervenes and schools them once more. And he says to them, you know... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus said this to them in Jericho, which gave them much to think about on their way to Jerusalem. You see, the road that led from Jericho up to Jerusalem was about 14 miles if it was measured in a straight line, but it also involved a rise in elevation about 3,300 feet. And there was nothing scenic about this road. This was not your Blue Ridge Parkway. This was desolate terrain. This was wilderness. This was a dry and arid desert where water was tough to come by. This was the road upon which the Good Samaritan found the man who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And it would have taken Jesus and the twelve as well as that large crowd that was with them all day to make that journey. So when Matthew says here in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, you can bet they were whipped. And based upon Mark's testimony, it was getting late in the day. But it wasn't so late that Jesus could not send two disciples into that village on a prophetic errand. We don't know which two disciples he sent to fetch the donkey and her foal. But it would not would it not have been interesting if it was James and John? You see, Jesus is about to provide all the children of Abraham with a sign. And Matthew is careful to record this in great detail, citing the prophecy of Zechariah 9:9. This is the sign that Israel is to look for in regard to the promised king of Zion. Now, Zechariah was the prophet to the returning exiles, and his call was one to repentance. Their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers had failed to keep the covenant that God made with Abraham. Though God had saved their people from the clutches of Pharaoh, they failed to keep the Mosaic covenant, and they chased after other gods. But now... Now they were to experience the comfort of the Lord. Now they were to be assured that the Lord was coming to them. And in the wilderness, they were to prepare the way of the Lord. They were to make straight in the desert the highway for their God. 
And how would they recognize Him? How would they know that the promised one had finally come? Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Does it get much clearer than that? In commenting on the word highway that is used in Isaiah 40, one commentator writes, the term highway, which in Hebrew is Messiah, is a less familiar, more precise term. It's usually taken to denote a a trunk road as opposed to a byway or a city street. But N.L. Tidwell argues that it denotes the approach road to a city leading to the gate, palace, and temple, which was thus part of the processional route to the sanctuary. So here comes the king. Approaching the holy city of God, riding on the fold of a donkey, righteous and having salvation, traveling on the highway that leads to the temple in Jerusalem where the very presence of God has promised to dwell with crowds of people hailing him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that word means save now. And those words that the crowd were singing and exclaiming are from the words from Psalm 118, which we read a moment ago. And John Lang indicates that this is unmistakably a temple song. That is, it was written for celebratory feast days and would have been most familiar to those who were making their way in procession to the holy city and to the temple of God. And their cries to save now are from verses 25 and 6, which we can easily understand. But it would have been far more appropriate if they would have been singing the psalm from verse 19 on. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Oh, friends, this... Psalm was sung as the sacrificial animals were brought forward as an offering unto the Lord. Verse 27 says, The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This crowd that accompanies Jesus believes that salvation is but a moment away. They've seen His power. They've seen His miracles. They've witnessed things that no man has ever done before. And their celebration and loud cries aroused Jerusalem late in the day, causing such a stir that the residents there ask, Who is this? 
Now, they did not pose the question because they were entirely unfamiliar with this Jesus, but rather they were not sure who exactly was making their way into the city in a regal procession that would result in such a religious display. But notice the answer that is offered to their question. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Others Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. You see the difference. None of the prophets would have been suitable to provide the kind of comfort that the world needs. None of the prophets would have been suitable to be bound and carried to the cross and slain there for the sins of the world. None of the prophets would have been able to do battle with death and rise victorious. None of the prophets would have been suitable to become the gate through which nations could walk into the very presence of Almighty God and been declared righteous. Such a sacrifice would require a divine being, a perfect, sinless man. The psalmist declares that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This humble procession of Israel's king riding into the city on the foal of a donkey was a declaration that God had come in peace. And yet the terms of peace that God offered, terms of peace that would result in their true and genuine and eternal comfort, was thoroughly rejected. Thankfully, the terms of peace that were being offered that day, God continues to offer to any who are willing to accept them. And they begin with an acknowledgement that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a failure to recognize His true identity results in an untenable spiritual condition for anyone who cries out to God, Hosanna, save now. If Jesus is not fully divine, then what he offers as an atoning work cannot satisfy the demands of the Father, which is a perfect substitute. But if he is not fully human, then what he offers as an atoning work cannot satisfy what is demanded of me. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The comfort that will satisfy the human soul, the deep sigh of relief that comes from knowing that we are now at peace with God and that eternal destruction has passed over us comes through a genuine repentance, a turning away from our pursuit of sin and deciding to leave our own tax booth working for the enemy and following after Jesus wherever he may lead. And only then are we enabled by faith to lay hold of him only to discover that He has already laid hold of us. The temptation that the devil set before the Son when He brought Him to the pinnacle of the temple 
was not really about whether the father could be fully trusted. The temptation was really about whether the son could be fully trusted. You see, before the foundation of the world, the Son gave His word to the Father that He would don the flesh of mankind in order to die on our behalf, in order to redeem those whom the Father gave to the Son as an inheritance. The reason that Jesus resisted the devil's temptation was rooted in the depth of love that He had for those whom the Father had given to him from before the foundation of the world. And that love has never changed. And it pursues sinners like you and me. And if you have never surrendered to this love, if you have never turned to Christ to find relief for your soul, then I invite you to do so this day by crying out, Hosanna. Save now. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment?